0: Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 34. Please follow along in your Bible or on your device, uh, tablet, or your phone. We read out of the New King James Version of the Bible. The topic we're going to find in this text, Jesus is asked if Jews ought to pay taxes to the oppressive government of the Caesars. The title of our message, Lethal Caesars Taxes Taxes. Let's have a word of prayer. What? What? You know, they are the third largest pizza chain in the world behind Pizza Hut and Domino's. It's hard to believe since no one here eats there. But uh, anyway, let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, attend to your word, to be attentive, to listen, as the scripture says, to have ears to hear what the spirit says to the church. This text, it, it has a particular design in terms of, of what it was meant to convey to the first century Jews and the Roman audience that was reading it as well, uh, but Lord, it also speaks to us right where we sit today in the 21st century here in Hanford, California, and I pray that you, by your spirit, would teach us exactly what you want to teach us, that we would hear your voice speaking to our hearts. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether we're abounding or being abased, Uh, Lord, that you would minister to us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I voted. I trust you voted as well. I'm always fascinated by the different political parties that are represented on the ballot. In addition to Republican and Democrat, you could register American Independent, Green Party, Libertarian Party, or Peace and Freedom. There are more than 30 additional national political parties that were not represented on the California ballot. Among those parties, I'll just give you two of them. There's something called the Humane Party. It's a national political party with a focus on animal rights and a sustainable economy. They were founded in 2009, and they require all candidates, officers, and board members to sign an oath abstaining from the use of animal products and services. Their goal includes the abolishing of the property status of animals. And so animals will no longer be property. I don't know what they'll be. I guess they'll be people. Uh, But their logo features a red, white, and blue cow skipping across the continental United States. Since our logo features meat on Monday, I doubt that that's going to be very attractive to too many of you guys. But anyway, and then here's a fun party, the United States Marijuana Party, cannabis political party in the U.S. founded in 2002 by Loretta Nall, specifically to end the war on drugs and legalize cannabis. I can only assume they get very little done at their conventions. (laughs) Just an assumption. Hey, man. Don't you think we should have a speech? Why? I was thinking about all this because our Bible passage in the Gospel of Mark has a lot to do with first century Jewish politics. First, Jesus is going to be asked a question about Jews paying taxes to Rome. The mixed group who asked him include a few Pharisees and a few Herodians. Now, the Pharisees were against paying taxes to Rome, whereas the Herodians were essentially a political party And very much pro-tax. Second, Jesus is asked the question about the resurrection from the dead. Now, it may not seem like a political question until you understand who it was that was asking him. It was a group called the Sadducees who did not believe in an afterlife. Meaning they were all about prospering as much as possible under the Roman government Israel, And so they were trying to show, hey, since there's no afterlife, let's just agree with Rome and prosper. Now, after Jesus deals with those concerns, he gets asked the third question. It sounds like, and it is in this essence a spiritual question, but although spiritual, Jesus' answer impacts the kind of citizens we ought to be in whatever nation we find ourselves in or in whatever state our union might be in. I began to wonder what kind of questions I am or we are mostly asking jesus that's going to be a point of application this morning what kind of questions am i mostly asking jesus and so i'll organize my comments around two questions number one when you talk with jesus is it mostly about your material prosperity or number two when you talk with jesus is it mostly about your spiritual passions so let's take a look first of all at this area of material prosperity that we'll find in verses 13 through 27 Here's something most of you will remember, read my lips, no new taxes. That was a enduring soundbite from the 1988 Republican National Convention speech that became the cornerstone of George H.W. Bush's victory and presidency. Taxation, always a volatile subject, never more so than in first century Israel. So let's get right into it in verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch him in his words. The Pharisees are thought to have originated in the 3rd century BC, in the days preceding the Maccabean Revolt, when under Greek domination there was a strong tendency among the Jews to accept Greek culture with its pagan religious customs. Sometimes it's called Hellenization uh, out of the Greek culture uh, where they wanted to make the Jews more like themselves and the Jews were buying into it. They wanted to be Hellenized or secularized or adopt the pagan customs. The rise of the Pharisees was a reaction and a protest against this tendency by their fellow kinsmen. Their aim was to preserve their national integrity and strict conformity to the law of Moses and so we would say that these guys started off well with the best of intentions only later did they develop into the self-righteous hypocritical ritualists that we meet in the gospels the Herodians were not a religious sect at all but as the name implies a political party fully supporting the dynasty of the Herods who were put in charge of Israel And so they were loyal to King Herod and the Herods, even though they were not the rightful kings of Israel. And so they were the Herodians, strictly political. These groups could not disagree more with one another. The Pharisees opposed all things Roman, while the Herodians supported Rome. Pharisees opposed paying any taxes to Rome. After all, Rome was an oppressor. The taxes you paid went directly to fund the soldiers... They kept you subjugated. And so you were paying to be a subject people. The Herodians were all about paying taxes. They wanted to enjoy safe travel on the Roman roads and the Roman peace and a free trade from all over the world. And so they were all about the Romans. They thought a question about taxes would trip up Jesus, because even though they hated each other, Jesus was a threat to both of them. They needed to try to eliminate him so they could get back to the status quo, and so verse 14, when they'd come, they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay Or shall we not pay? Now, a lot has been said about their prologue being flattery, and it may have been, but I see it more as sarcasm. While it is accurate to describe Jesus as true and not showing favoritism and as teaching sound doctrine, these are things you can say to be condescending. I think it was like saying to Jesus, so you think you're the Messiah? Then answer this, smart guy. My dad used to do that to me when I was in college. He says, oh, yeah, kid college, you think you're so smart? Answer this. And I I didn't know what he was talking about. But anyway, verse 15. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. Their hypocrisy was that they had joined forces to oppose Jesus. They hated each other, but they hated him more. I think it's also telling here that Jesus had to ask for a coin. He didn't carry any money. Uh, He left home without his American Express card or whatever it is, you know, What's in your wallet, Jesus? Yeah, nothing. Uh, And so he had to ask for a coin. And he's setting up something a little bit dramatic. Jesus has, I don't want to say this in a derogatory, but he had a flair for the dramatic. He was going to illustrate, uh, using a coin, uh, this amazing principle. And so they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Which, by the way, I have a hard time... Remembering who is on which denomination of money. Do you, do you ever? Yeah, I mean, you could counterfeit bills all day around me. I mean, Mickey Mouse could be on the hundred for all I. Ever have somebody give you a million dollar bill? So, man, thank you. Uh, but anyway, it's a gospel tract on the back. But anyway, uh, so I, don't, I, don't, I, I know George Washington is on the one, is that correct? And then Benjamin Franklin, is he on the five? Fifty? Ten? 100? Oh, the hundred, the C note. I should, yeah. So anyway, that, that's, maybe that's what my dad used to ask me. <laughs> anyway, and so the image was probably, uh, verse 16, they, they said to him, Caesar's. The image was probably that of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription would read in Latin, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the reverse side, it would uh, say chief priest. Now, this inscription originated in the imperial cult of emperor worship. It was a claim to divinity, which was particularly repulsive to the Jews. So not only did they have to pay taxes to this Roman pagan government that subjected them, but they had to do it using coins that said Caesar was God. And so this is the worst kind of taxation that you can imagine. If Jesus were to simply answer, yes, pay your taxes... He would be siding with the Herodians and he would alienate himself from the common people and the majority, the vast majority of Jews. But if he said, no, don't pay taxes, then he could be classified as a traitor to Rome and arrested as an insurrectionist. He would, in fact, later be accused of saying just that, but it was a lie. And so verse 17, Jesus answered and said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's and they marveled at him. I've often wondered if he did that trick where you roll coins across your fingers, you know? I mean, you've gotta get into these scenes. I mean, this is powerful. We read it here, we say, Jesus said this and he said this and he said this. I mean, this is like, there's tension. I mean, these people, they want Jesus dead there's guards uh, within earshot. Let's arrest this guy. He just said not to pay taxes. And he's got this coin. And I can see him playing with the thing. And then he says, so render to Caesar what says. He flips it back out to the crowd, you know. I mean, Jesus, cool as a cucumber. And what a great answer. Now, we normally jump right into a discussion of the Christian and government. Yes, this answer by Jesus does instruct us to pay our taxes it's applicable to believers in every age under every government as bible commentator william mcdonald says the believer is to obey and support the government under which he lives he is not to speak evil of his rulers or work to overthrow the government he is to pay taxes and to pray for those in authority those are broad brush parameters for every christian everywhere all the time but listen carefully There's something else going on with Jesus' answer, something that reveals a much deeper insight than the argument about taxes. The Jews were suffering and struggling under a godless government because they had rejected godliness. They had to deal with the image of Caesar on their coins because they had rejected being made in the image of God. The Jews were only subject to Rome because of their own national sin. God intended for them to be an independent nation, a theocracy ruled by him. But all through their history, they rebelled against the authority of God, and each time they disobeyed, he answered by raising up Gentile nations to discipline them. And that is why Jesus goes beyond the answer and adds, Render to God the things that are God's. In other words, they're saying, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus basically says, the only reason you must is because you fail to render to God what is God's. You brought this on yourself. Oh, excuse me. I didn't expect that. And so, yeah, pay your taxes. But you know what's behind all of this? If they had done what they were supposed to do, they would have not been in that predicament in the first place. It's an election year and we should vote. Just remember when you do, our hope as a nation is always spiritual. It's not political. And it starts with the church being the church staying on point in its mission. What we need ultimately is more Christians. More Christians means a more godly government. Less Christians means a less godly government. And so vote, get involved in politics, have a field day. But our help is spiritual. God exalts a righteous nation. And uh, now, we're not Israel. We didn't replace Israel. We don't have a manifest destiny. Uh, But righteousness still exalts any nation. And so, make decisions that point us back to righteousness. Now next, a group of Sadducees came with a question. Verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him a question. Now, religiously, the Sadducees only accepted as Scripture the first five books of the Bible, the ones written by Moses. So anything Moses didn't write, they didn't accept it. It wasn't inspired as far as they were concerned. They denied the existence of a spiritual world of angels and demons. They did not believe in the afterlife, believing that your soul perished at death. And they therefore said there was no resurrection from the dead because there was nothing to rise. They crafted a question designed they thought to show how silly it was to think there would be a resurrection from the dead followed by an afterlife. And so they say in verse 19... Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. The second took her, he died, nor did he leave any offspring, and the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise... Whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Well, there's one question here that's more important to me, and that is, what were they eating? (laughs) Check that salsa before you dip into it. Man, these guys, she's like the original black widow. Goes through this family like cutting butter. I mean, wow. (laughs) Hey, you got to marry your sister's, uh, uh, you know, widow. Yeah, uh, thanks, but no thanks. And so this is one of those philosophical questions. This never happened. But it's like when I was studying philosophy, you study philosophy that somebody eventually says, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody is there to hear it, does it make noise? And that somehow leads you into what they call epistemology, the theory of knowledge. How do we know anything? Which leads you to the understanding that you can't know anything. You might not even exist. C.S. Lewis one time was debating a guy who came to the conclusion that you couldn't really know if he was actually there. And so when it was C.S. Lewis's time to get up and answer the debate, he just sat in his chair. He didn't get up, and they finally said, are you gonna get up? And he goes, how can I talk to a man that's not there? Showing the absurdity of this position. So this is an absurd example, but it's an example nonetheless. Now the command here is in the Bible. It's called the law of levirate marriage. In a tribal society where land rights were critical, you had to produce offspring, and you couldn't let your line die out, okay? So if a man died childless, it was up to a brother or another close relative to produce children in his name so that their rights would be preserved. The book of Ruth revolves around this law as you see boaz stepped forward to marry ruth he wasn't the closest uh he wasn't a brother but he was the closest blood relative who was willing and able to step forward and marry her and so we would say the system worked we don't like that system uh but if if you were in a tribal society that's what you did and so jesus answered and said to them are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of god for when they rise up from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now let me dispel quickly an error some people fall into. We do not become angels after we die. Every time a bell rings, no angel gets his wings. Okay, that's Hollywood theology. Uh, Michael Landon aside, you know, n- there are no, no people become angels. No angels become people. We are two separate entities. Now, this is one of those statements that causes believers a lot of grief. We have a notion that husbands and wives will live happily ever after in the hereafter. But according to Jesus, there will be no marriages of that kind in heaven. This sort of kills Mormon theology, by the way. If you're familiar with the Mormon theology that there are celestial brides and you populate planets in heaven, uh, there's no marriage. So why no marriage? Well, think about it for just a minute. God established marriage for companionship and for procreation. In heaven, you won't ever be alone. And in heaven, it'll be populated by those who have been born again by faith in Jesus prior to eternity, not by people being born in eternity. No babies are going to be born in eternity. Ladies, you should be happy. I don't know what labor would be like in heaven, but um, no babies. As far as I can tell, the angels don't reproduce other little angels. They're little wings. their little horns. And it's in this respect that we will be like them. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. If there's no sex in heaven, I'm not going. I know you can't believe I said that, but I know what you're thinking. I've been here long enough. C.S. Lewis explained it like this in his book, Miracles. The letter and spirit of scripture and of all Christianity forbids us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. It is not, of course, necessary to suppose that the distinction of sexes will disappear. What is no longer needed for biological purposes may be expected to survive. We now know the sexual life. We do not now know, except in glimpses, the other better thing, which in heaven will leave no room for it. Where fullness awaits us. And so C.S. Lewis just points out. Whatever we think we lack in heaven. God has something so much better for us. That we don't even know what it is. What could be better? I don't know. But I can say this. The Bible does teach that there is at least one marriage in heaven. It is Jesus Christ married to his bride the church. We each have that to look forward to. And we will all enjoy together perfect companionship with our each other and with jesus forever and ever now notice jesus said when they rise from the dead he didn't say if they rise from the dead he clearly believed in a physical resurrection and he proves it to the sadducees from their own self-limited scriptures verse 26 concerning the dead that they rise have you not read in the book of moses In the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. He says, he didn't say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham while he was alive. He says, no, I am the God of Abraham who is alive, as is Isaac and Jacob and all those who have gone before them and have come after them. Now, Moses wrote as if the patriarchs were still alive after death, thus the argument that there was no afterlife and therefore no resurrection was just absurd. Even though the Sadducees asked what it sounded like a spiritual question, their motivation was primarily material. Since they did not believe in an afterlife and they believed in annihilation after death, they were all about prospering now in the material world. They tended to be wealthy. They held powerful positions, including that of the chief priest and the high priest. And they held the majority of the 70 seats of the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. They worked hard to keep the peace by agreeing with the decisions of Rome. And they were more concerned with politics than religion. I mean, just think about it for just a second. If you... Uh, you're not a Christian let's say and you are taught and you believe that God has said in the first five books of the Bible there's no afterlife and no resurrection therefore there's no reward there's no punishment there's just annihilation party join the United States marijuana party you might as well go for it become a sociopath do whatever you want because you know it's amazing that they had any restraint at all And so this was strictly about material prosperity. They worked hard to keep peace with Rome by agreeing with the decisions of Rome, and they were more concerned with politics than they were with religion. Now, these two questions from these three groups revealed that they were focused upon the here and now. They were concerned with their own material prosperity. That's not always a bad thing, but if you could ask the Son of God a question, would it really be about whether or not you had to pay taxes? You ever call into a radio talk show program? I, I avoid that like the plague, but some people love to do that. They screen the call. What are you going to ask the host? Because they don't want, well some, some, well, some programs do want you if you're a nut job, but most of the time they want a sincere dialogue. And so if you were calling into Peter and say, I've got a question for Jesus. You know, what is it? Should we pay taxes? Well, this, that's a stupid question. For, is that really what you want to talk about the son of God with? Or how about this? In the case of the Sadducees, would you try to get God incarnate, God in human flesh, to agree with you that this life is all there is so that we can eat, drink, and be merry? So here's Jesus, God in human flesh, on his way to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Eh, There's no resurrection, is there? Because we want to go home and party a little bit. I mean, these are stupid questions in the context of who they were asking. They were in this horrible condition because they had turned away from following God. Think of this. We said that the Pharisees were a reaction to the efforts of Greeks pressuring the Jews to adopt their pagan ways. The nation of Israel was in that predicament because of their own sin. Had they kept following God, they wouldn't be subject to these other governments. And there never would have been a Pharisee party. There wouldn't be people raised up to get them to not be subject to the subjugating government because they'd be a free, independent people. In a free, independent Israel, the Herodians would not exist at all because Herod would never have been king over them. And likewise, there would be no tolerance for Sadducees who conveniently tore out most of their scripture in order to figure a way to prosper under pagan authority. And so all of this only existed because Israel sinned. And they had gotten so used to it that they didn't even think about going back to where they started. The answer was right in front of them. They were talking to the answer. To all of their questions. And Jesus, he didn't, again, he didn't just tell them to pay their taxes. He told them why they were in the predicament they were in. And they could have repented on the spot. What do you talk to Jesus about mostly? Well, it can be good litmus test for keeping you from concentrating on material things when spiritual things are so much more important. Now, let's get into verses 28 through 34. When you talk with Jesus, is it mostly about your spiritual passion? If I asked you, how many commandments are there? You might say 10. And that would be a, an okay answer. But if you asked a first century Jew, he would say 613. Moses lose some tablets on the way down or what? No. (laughs) The rabbis had gone through the scriptures and identified 613 separate commandments. The 613 included 248 positive commandments to perform an act. And 365 negative commandments to abstain from certain acts. I wonder if they had a, a negative act calendar. Like today's negative act to abstain from. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. And then, you know, on through the other 365. I, it wasn't funny first service either, but you never know. I <laughs> thought maybe more of you were Sadducees and had been knocking some back. But anyway, since some laws seem heavier or more important than others, the Jews like to ask rabbis which commandment was the greatest. Then one of the scribes came to him, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, He asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Scribes were teachers whose office was to interpret the law to the people. They were held in high regard. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees had their scribes. This one was probably a Pharisee, seeing he thought Jesus' answer regarding the resurrection was a good one. He probably wasn't a Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So as a Pharisee, he'd think, hey, why didn't I think of that? I'm going to win every argument now down at the local, you know, argument place uh, where we gather for arguing. Now, the first commandment of all, by that he meant the most important one. If you were stranded on a desert island, which commandment would you take? It would be this one. Jesus said, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Now, Jesus began with the opening words of what is called the Shema, derives from the Hebrew word for hear. It consisted of portions of Numbers and Deuteronomy. It was recited twice daily, morning and evening, by devout Jews. And so he doesn't give the whole Shema here. He just gives a part of it to say, hey, it's the Shema that is the first commandment. Now, there's nothing new in this answer. Other rabbis over the centuries had said the same. And the Jews were already giving this priority, at least in their rituals, if not in real life, by uh, repeating it twice daily. But Jesus wasn't done answering. He says in verse 31, and the second, like it, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, by second, Jesus did not mean less important. He said it was like it, meaning it follows necessarily from it. They go together. One implies the other. You're not obeying the first commandment if the second doesn't flow from it. Jesus quoted here from Leviticus 19, verse 18, love for self is instinctive, it's our desire to promote our own good. This command demands that you must exercise a love equal to that which you have for yourself towards your neighbor. Now in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, neighbor meant a fellow Israelite, but in the New Testament, Jesus expanded it to include a much wider audience, especially when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. They said, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan who was driving his Winnebago down the highway, the Good Sam Club, remember? Remember? Is there still a good Sam club? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Wow. All right. 61. I'm past my prime. But uh, anyway, so Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. he said that his real point was whose neighbor are you? It's not who's my neighbor because that implies I don't want him to borrow my, mo- my weed eater you know that guy's not my neighbor this guy might be my neighbor but not the guy across the street jesus says whose neighbor are you why don't you go mow his yard for him and it's a whole different way of thinking of things and so jesus is telling us here that if if you're not loving your neighbor if you're not showing love to other human beings on a god level on an agape level then you're really not keeping the first commandment either they go together hand in hand It's interesting to note that the first commandment Jesus cited summarizes one tablet of the 10 commandments while the second commandment summarizes the other. The four on one tablet have to do with our relationship with God while the six on the other have to do with our relationships with others so the scribe said to him well said teacher you've spoken the truth for there is one god and there is no other but he and to love him with all the heart with all the understanding with all the soul with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself well that's more than all the whole burnt offering and sacrifice now the scribe put the truth ahead of political correctness and social status He knew that Jesus had answered the question beautifully, and in fact, he knew that he had answered it once and for all. This question never needed to be asked again. This was the answer. He recognized, too, that ritual sacrifices, important as they were under the law, could never be a substitute for loving your neighbor. What he's saying is if I don't love my neighbor, I can sacrifice cows until the cows come home, and it's not going to do me any good because it's an empty show. And what God really requires is obedience and love. In verse 34, when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Let's refresh our understanding of what can be meant by the kingdom of God. It can mean one of three things. The kingdom of God refers to God's rule over his creation. Even though mankind sinned in the Garden of Eden, God has never abdicated his throne. He remains in charge, overruling the universe by his providence. He will redeem creation and restore all things. And so it's always applicable to talk about the kingdom of God as the overarching rule of God of his universe. Now, the kingdom of God is also the literal rule of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, on the earth from David's throne in Jerusalem, Israel. The Jews in their scriptures are promised such a physical kingdom. When Jesus came the first time, he tried to inaugurate it, but he was rejected, so it was postponed. That's why he's coming back a second time when he will establish the kingdom of God on the earth for a thousand years and then on into eternity. A real physical kingdom on the earth. Thirdly, the kingdom of God means the spiritual reign of God in the hearts of individuals at any time in history from genesis to revelation and so we're under the overarching rule of the kingdom of god and wherever we're at in terms of the literal kingdom being on the earth when you come to know christ as your savior you can be honestly said to be in his kingdom because you are under his spiritual rule in your heart and so it's very important that we keep those distinct today there's a lot of talk in the uh, evangelical church about the kingdom I almost did air quotes. We hate air quotes around here. I just, you know, air quotes. We, although we did, we have invented the air uh, parentheses. So I don't know when to use them. We're, we're getting to that next. So you have air quotes and air parentheses. And I'm sorry, Sylvia, about the Spanish translation. I'm just off on a tangent. But anyway, uh, and now I don't even know what I was talking about in the first place. Oh, yeah, the church. A lot of people talk about the kingdom and how to live in the kingdom. and And they're confused. They're confusing God's spiritual rule in our hearts now with the literal kingdom, which is not here. We're not in the literal kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth, namely because Jesus Christ is not here. He is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. When he comes, we can talk about that other part of the kingdom. Now, how was this scribe not far from the kingdom? Well, for one thing, he was talking to the king. He was a few feet or less away from Jesus. More importantly, this was an invitation to salvation. Not far is still too far if you never make it to where you're going. The scribe needed to receive Jesus as his savior. He needed to repent of his sin. And he needed to submit to Jesus' spiritual rule in his heart. And we would say today in our language, he was not saved. He answered correctly. He understood that Jesus had given the the proper answer. He even expanded the answer so he had insight. But he had not received Jesus Christ as his king. And Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom. You need to repent and confess and receive me. Apparently, you can come close to being saved, but still be lost. Does that describe anyone here today? Have you been born again by receiving Jesus Christ? If not, you're close because the Holy Spirit is here and he is freeing your will so that you can understand the words of the gospel, so that you can know you're a sinner in need of salvation, so that you can receive Christ as your savior. But you must respond, you must put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now after that, no one dared question him, I guess. It was obvious they were never going to get him to say something his press secretary would have to re-explain. Don't you love that? When certain politicians say absolutely imbecilic things, not thinking of anybody in particular, and then they're, can you imagine, Peter, what did he mean by that taxation? Well, what he really meant was, and then they put some spin on, Jesus is the original no spin guy. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Yeah, but it's your fault that you do so. Well, you're not gonna get elected that way. No, you're gonna get crucified that way because people hate to hear the truth. They wanna live in darkness rather than the light. Keeping with this theme of uh, politics jesus answer to this question affects us in that we live out his command to love our neighbor as ourself in society with others in other words whichever of the 30 plus political parties i belong to or you belong to i must still be recognizable as a follower of jesus christ He is to be my exclusive passion from which I determine how to live among others to bring them the gospel first and then the betterment of life afterward. Betterment of life means nothing if a person is going to die and be lost for eternity. I'm sure all of you know by now uh, you've heard about this shooting in Orlando at the nightclub. 50 people are dead. 50 people Who were having a night out on the town in Orlando, Florida, gunned down in the worst single tragedy of its kind in United States history, 53 others wounded, gunmen killed. I do mean to scare you. You know, sometimes people say, well, I don't mean to scare you. Yeah, I do. Because that's how quickly life ends. And so we don't have time to mess around, especially if you're not a Christian. You need to be born again. You need to get saved. You need to do it this morning as we wait upon the Lord. And if you're a Christian, if we're Christians, what should we really be doing with our life and time to affect this nation for godliness? How is uh, righteousness going to exalt our nation if we're not righteous? It's not. Let's pray.